and welcome. My name is Mark. My name is also Mark. And welcome to The Marketing Show. Just so we're clear, we are both called Mark. That is correct. Join us each week as we study the principles that make businesses succeed. Each week, we'll dive into a new concept to uncover a new piece of the puzzle. We're a couple of marketing guys who are passionate about the craft and are hungry to learn more. So we're excited to have you along for our learning journey. You can subscribe on all major podcast platforms. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And on today's episode, we'll be learning about... Media campaign measurements. Got my ruler out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very metric heavy, um, heavy episode today. But it sure is. Yeah, but um, I guess uh, if you've ever seen a TV ad, a bus shelter ad, um, you've ever been served a Facebook ad, or maybe even received the uh, odd cheeky EDM into your Gmail account, um, you know, all those campaigns need to be measured at some point in time to know if they're actually being effective. And sometimes as marketers, you know, we, we fulfill very creative roles, but sometimes we also feel like quasi-investment bankery roles where we have to <laughs> make sure that when we're investing to grow our brands, we're also getting a great return. And that's why um, measurement is so important. Yeah, it's such a fun way to think about it. I'd never thought that before, but you're sort of like moving funds around to optimize your campaign. Yeah. It's a bit bankery. <laughs> it's, it can get very Wolf of Wall Streetery. <laughs> Totally, we wear a power suit. I also love that EDMs, like sliding into the EDMs, is like the marketer's like nerdy version of sliding into the DMs. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get my EDM? <laughs> exactly. Um, well, Mark, let's let's just crack on straight into let's it. Let's do it. So, when it comes to a media campaign, we're defining a media campaign is a paid promotional program completed over a, spe- a specified period of time. Sometimes you do a media campaign to launch a new product or a service to boost your core business or maybe just to complete a routine, a calendar event. It might be a brand or business that has to do something once a year and you need to tell people about that or to drive traffic and that's when you might also have a media campaign go live. Media campaigns can be super big, they can be everywhere, they can be uh, millions and millions of dollars or they could be pretty small. There could be a small Facebook buy that you do to um, promote your podcast but either way you need to make sure you're measuring them to see what result you're getting yeah and, and that's it and your media campaign might be uh, one big burst in January uh, or it might be always on all, all the time every, every day of the year so it can come in many shapes and forms I think like in marketing we do a re- like a lot of really great stuff like we do great market analysis then strategy and innovation and pull together the business cases and internally sell it to the big wigs and then we do external selling and then we do media campaigns campaigns and the product hits the shelf the media campaign goes live but then often that sort of people just dust their hands and go great that was a success I launched the product and Mm. and now there's a campaign live and I think you know that next step of actually measuring how the campaign is going is it being effective and are we are we doing it in an efficient way and overall is it driving sales for our business is really important and probably something that a lot of us could do a bit better is sort of that live optimization. So that's why today when we're talking media campaigns, we're specifically talking about the measurement and optimization of media campaigns um, to ensure that you're getting an optimal return on that ab- advertising spend and overall just having the most effective campaign you can. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what we know we're really going to get to our investment bankery marketing roots um, because of all that. And honestly, it's a really fun part of marketing. Mm. Um, it's really cool that... You know, oftentimes in the past, you didn't really have the opportunity to measure a lot of things. And if you look at the the Mad Men days or the days of um, confessions of a mad ma- uh, of an ad man and David Ogilvy, oftentimes you have these debates of whether doing something creative was effective. 
um, and if you should even be investing in media in the first place because it was really difficult to draw the data points and links between I guess creativity and sales um, whereas now we have all these, the luxury of so many different tools and a lot of research and knowledge to know uh, when we are doing things really well for our brands and businesses, which is really, really exciting. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword as well because while we can measure it so much better now, it's almost with all of the measurement that goes on, you do risk losing some of the creativity and, and the big stuff that actually does drive effective marketing, which sometimes can still be hard to prove. So it is a little bit double-edged in that way yeah exactly and i think hopefully today through our, our podcast episode we'll be able to give you guys some basic tools and principles to know um what to be measuring and, and how to be thinking about the different levers you can pull to get the best return on your investment yeah well before we start mark why don't you um start us off with a quote yeah i'd love to um the quote we've got for for today um it's quite philosophical it's uh the cost of being wrong is never less than the cost of doing nothing. And that's from Seth Godin. Mm. And the reason that quote is really cool is that oftentimes when you're measuring a campaign, sometimes the results can actually go really wrong. And even if they go wrong, it's actually really okay because you can use that to learn and to move forward. Um, because oftentimes had you not done a campaign, even if it was pretty bad, it's a lot better than just not doing anything with your brand and business and, and going out and having a go. So. Um, really important to take that into consideration and, and know that each campaign is something to help learn and to fuel the growth of the next campaign. Mm, it's such a good point. And, you know, if you just put your product on the shelf and then don't talk about it and do nothing, of course you're, you're going to end up having it, you know, not exist in the future. So really good one from Seth Godin. I've got another quote as well, doubling down today, uh, which is, brand growth is an effectiveness KPI, whilst cost per growth point is an efficiency KPI. At face value, the latter seems more important. It quantifies the cost required to achieve the same result. But if we optimize towards that latter point, we could make decisions that ultimately deprive us of the successful outcome of brand growth in the first place. Uh, so that's from Malcolm Devoy, uh, and he's a big wig in media in the Europe and Middle East um, and Africa uh, sector. But really cool one about that sort of that double-edged sword, right? About sort of we need to do things that are effective and efficiency needs to be, I guess, the quality score or the metric of how we drove the effectiveness, not the thing that we actually optimize towards. Yes, it's absolutely awesome. It's a really good quote and, and definitely something to think about um, as to frame up this episode. Mm. Now, Mark, uh, why don't we dive into some stats and, and get our head around some numbers when it comes to uh, marketing and media campaigns? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, uh, study some stats from a Nielsen report on media effectiveness. So in 2006, uh, what they called Project Apollo uh, found that 65% of brand sales left from advertising derived from the quality of the creative. So it's really interesting, right, to, to talk about media, but actually the most important part of your media campaign is creative. And we'll touch on that in a little bit. Um, but that's uh, since that was 2006. Then in 2017, that shifted a little bit. So it's now in 2017, 47% of your brand sales lift in advertising comes from creative. So it has shifted a bit. However, that is still the lion's share of impact on your sales from advertising. So you got to get the creative right. In terms of the other uh, the other impacts on your media effectiveness and um, and how I guess big the proportion is of their impact, you've got uh, next you've got the brand itself. So what brand are you advertising? That will whether it's a big brand, small brand, well known or unknown, that's about fifteen percent impact. You've got the actual reach of your campaign is twenty two percent impact. So just getting reach is really important. We'll talk about that as a metric and what it means. 
the idea of recency uh, is 5%. We'll talk about that in a sec. Um, targeting 9% and context 2%. So there's a lot of focus on targeting these days with digital media. And, and you know, this study saying that it's only about 9% of your, your, your outcome of the media campaign comes down to how well you do targeting. So it's, it's definitely something we should be doing, but um, I think there's other things to focus on first before you get to that point. Uh, so another stat, uh, the effect of media on sales has increased uh, from 15% to 36% over the last 11 years. So media is very, very important to growing sales and even more important than it has been in the past. Um, and then this concept of recency. So I just uh, mentioned it before, but recency is essentially how close you get your ad to the purchase decision moment. So the closer you get it, the, um, the better the effect of the ad. And uh, there's an example here in beer advertising. If you run a beer ad on Thursday, Friday or Saturday, you're three times uh, more likely to get sales uplift than if you ran it on any other day of the week. So recency is really important and it makes sense. Yeah, and, and beer, beer is definitely on a lot of people's minds on Thursday <laughs> through to Saturday. And, um, but it's true, like the contextual and, and, the, and the, the temporal quality can be so important. And also just understanding uh, which mediums you want to drive your specific product or service and what category it operates in. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and then building off from that, we know there are so many different ways um, to explore your different media channels. And I think oftentimes when we look at uh, media campaigns, we think about uh, TV ads or bus shelter or bus, uh, bus strip ads. But uh, often uh, outside of those and even maybe Facebook and Instagram, the, the sleeping giant within this oftentimes is even EBM. So a lot of the learnings we'll have applies to um, creative within those other media channels. But we know that EDM is really growing. And one of the reasons that EDM is growing and that you need to do a lot of measurement around your, your EDM campaigns is that uh, Gmail alone has now uh, surpassed over 1 billion users and is expected to grow to 3 billion users by the end of 2020. So it's huge. You know, oftentimes when we think of digital and social, we will, it will stick to social networks. But good old-fashioned email um, is still really, really reign supreme. So really, really cool one to watch out for in the future. That's amazing to think Gmail will have like nearly half the world's population <laughs> signed up with a Gmail account. And like Gmail wasn't the first email provider exactly it's yeah. crazy really really fascinating cool so moving on for that mark let's move into some principles so i guess the first uh, thing we have to look at when we're thinking about our media campaigns will be the context of what's going on in the world at that particular point in time um and what we mean by that is understanding what are what have our competitors been doing uh, during the same period of time uh what content was most viral at that particular point in time what were the macroeconomic trends? Was there like a, a recession during the time that you were doing your media campaign? Was there maybe a boom? Did everyone get like a weird tax incentive at the time and they had a whole bunch of amazing stimulus cash to go and blow um, on your product at that particular point in time? Were there any really big world news events that might have triggered differences in sales outside of your media campaign? And was there, was there also an element of seasonality? So. Uh, when your media campaign was live or is you're about to go live, you know, are you expecting there to be more sales uplift than you would have without the media at that point in time? So, for example, if you were in a uh, business that maybe sold winter clothes and you did a, a media campaign, you know, outside of the, that season, 
you know, would you be getting a lot more sales uplift because you're doing it with media? Mm. I think you can then also use that information to choose when you do media. Yeah. There, there might have been a, an instance where something happened out of your control, but actually there was better sales. And if there is a chance of actually trying to predict that in future and optimizing to, to that time of year or, or when that sort of event occurs, you're only going to sort of improve your sales. And at, at that example on, you know, do you sell winter clothes and do you, do you try and advertise your product that's a summer product in winter to try and bolster your low period or do you actually try and hit summer hard when you're going to get the majority of your sales or you know is, is the effectiveness going to be less because people are already buying your product in summer it's definitely something to think about I, I think the other part is that that's sort of the macro trend but also are there specific things in your industry that happened at the time of your campaign that you can put put it down to you know say if you were selling milk and mm. there was a milk shortage uh raw material shortage uh that might have uh, impeded your ability to sell <laughs> milk so like little things that you need to be aware of uh, as well that could impact those results yeah definitely and i think taking that first step of when you're analyzing your media campaign of just looking at the world around you um, gives you a great lens to then go into the specific details because it's probably going to be hard to get every single data point and touch point as to why your media campaign was successful or not. But just having those as a, as a basic starting point would be really, really helpful to go into. Mm, I think off the back of that, then we uh, once you've, you've you sort of understand the context mm. of, of what's happening, I think we can talk about benchmarking yeah. a little bit. So, you know, if, you, if you're going into brief media, what, what's the objective and, and what are you sort of looking to achieve in terms of benchmarks? So with media and creative for that matter as well, which we'll get onto after, is um, you need to sort of understand what's important and what, what adjustments you're going to make throughout the campaign if you're not meeting those benchmarks. So some of the things you might want to think about when setting a benchmark is, you know, do you compare to a previous campaign? So if you ran, say, just to keep things really simple, a TV campaign at the same time last year, uh, are you going to run uh, another TV campaign this year? And then if so, what were the results? You know, were, were, did you have an increase in penetration whilst that campaign ran and therefore what was the penetration and what do you expect to get this year? The same or higher or a little bit less? Um, so that's one way. And then the other thing is if you want to get then a little bit more technical is you can compare averages from media channels specifically. So you, that would first option was, you know, you you ran a campaign and did it impact your sales or your outcome for the business? The second would be how did those actual individual channels go? So example might be you ran a 30 second video on YouTube. Uh, you might want to optimize towards the completion rate of that video. Therefore, if your completion rate in a previous campaign was, you know, 28 seconds uh, into, into the video, is that going to be the benchmark for this one? You have to do 28 seconds or better. Yeah, definitely. And I think having those benchmarks means that you can uh, have a really clear brief when you're going to, into briefing media. And once you have those benchmarks and the, and the campaigns uh, being completed, you can go back and just really just remind yourself as to what you briefed and what the objectives were, not just for you, but also for the cross-functional team that's helping you deliver on those objectives as well. Um, and when you are setting those goals, it's really cool to sometimes use the really classic SMART goals principle. Mm. So it's classic uh, year 10 business studies. You know, you learn it when you really start out in the world of business and marketing. It's a foundation, but it's a foundation for a reason. And when we talk about setting SMART goals, uh, we talk about our goals that are specific, uh, that are measurable, that are attainable, that are relevant, and that are timely. And if you can go through each of those little checkpoints when you are setting your benchmarks, you can make sure that when it does come to analyze your media campaign, that you have something really tangible to go off and you can really see 
and use it as a benchmark for the future as well. Mm, yeah, love a smart objective. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I mentioned there, uh, you might want to measure both your media, but also the creative. And we mm. said right up the top, creative is so important when it comes to the success of your media. Um, so some things to think about when you, when you have your creative, so you might've briefed media and then you've got a media plan and you go, great, the, you know, I'm being told by the media agency or just by my own uh, research that I need to have a a short video asset and then a slightly longer one for TV and then maybe some static assets, whatever it might be. So then you go and brief a creative agency or, or whoever your creative is internally. Uh, and then what you might wanna do once you get the first iterations back is, I mean, first of all, trust your gut feel. And, and we had a sort of a whole creative episode which you can reference in terms of what to look for when you're looking at creative and you're not a creative yourself, but a marketer instead. Um, but then I think the four key things after sort of what's your gut feel and reaction to, to the creative is, is the purpose of the ad really clear? Like if you show it to someone once, do they know what brand it is and what you're trying to do or sell? Mm. At a very base level, you have to get that right and that underpins everything else. The second would be, is it distinctive? So, okay, first of all, do you know what it is? Second of all, does it actually make people want to watch it or get interested in it? Is it likable? Does it um, sort of feel like something that might be a bit, have a bit of a viral element? Uh, third one is context. So does it really make sense for the context that the consumer is viewing, viewing it in? So you could look at like clarity scores and things like that. And then um, the fourth one would be relevance um, or insight on the core idea for the viewer. So if you're talking to mums about a product for their kids, when you show them this ad, are they going to really feel like you understand what it's like to be them and be a mum that has young kids? Uh, because if, you, if you're off the mark there, they're just going to switch off straight away. Mm. Absolutely, and I think the cool thing is that we there are so many tools available depending on which media platforms you go with. So oftentimes when you're using digital tools, uh, they will ha come with amazing ways to measure these things. And if you are using maybe more of a traditional media platform, if you want to assess things like if uh, creative is relevant or um, if it resonates with the, with the consumer, sometimes it's better just to go see it in person as well if there's not a great measurement about tool available so an example of this would be like if you were doing a, a billboard on a highway and you knew that on that highway it was a very busy highway but the speed limit could get up to 100 kilometers an hour sometimes it's really important just to get in your car and maybe just drive at 100 kilometers an hour at the speed limit as you would be on that highway and see if you can see the billboard <laughs> Um, and maybe do that one at one uh, time of day and then maybe also do it at a time when it's maybe more of a peak hour and you can really assess whether or not that creative was effect as effective as it could be. Um, and I know this personally because some, and there's a uh, specific billboard on the M2 in Sydney for a large co-working space and oftentimes I find that their creative is super unclear and I've driven past it quite a few times but at the speed that I'm actually driving in, uh, it's hard to actually take in all the information so I feel like if they, you know, they had a, a score for assessing whether their creative was viewable and even viral and, and relevant, probably is not doing a great job because mm. I actually can't read or, or engage with the creative at the speed at which the medium intends me to engage with it. Yeah, it's actually surprising how often you see ads that clearly haven't been thought about for the context that yeah. they're in. I mean, I think I've shared examples on highways as well before, but one of them recently that I saw, I uh, don't want to go too off topic, but is uh, when I've been riding my bike to work, I get stuck behind a lot of buses in the city yeah. and there's a bus ad for Musashi at yeah. the moment. Uh, and what they've done is they've put a picture of an athlete sitting down with a protein shake, but then they've sort of overlaid a complete black um, sort of layer on top and then etched out the the brand name Musashi across three lines, like Musashi. Yeah. 
And so you sort of get bits, you sort of see this athlete through the letters of Masashi, if that makes sense. Mm. And the way that they've positioned the letters over him makes it really like hard to see what's actually going on. And also the, le- the shape of the letters goes into his bicep, which makes them look not that good. <laughs> like they're trying to sell something that's going to make you big and strong. And, and it sort of, it, it makes his arms look a funny, um, fun, funny yeah, curve, right. uh, kind, of, kind of odd. So yeah, I, I don't know whether that one was one that they really tested out exactly know? and if they did that creative digitally even especially maybe on something like facebook or youtube they'd be able to get a really clear digital score that mm. lets them know as to how effective or viewable that content was then they would have gotten a score back being like hey guys people actually can't see this online mm. and they could do something about that metric but you're right when it comes to a more traditional media platform like a bus ad you could only really know that by seeing it in context in real life yeah. they might have approved it on a computer screen that might have looked awesome but in that real environment, measuring it like that, probably not so much. Mm, totally, totally. Okay, well, should we get into the, the meat of the episode and into the actual measurement metrics? Let's do it. Yeah. All right, well, let's, let's, let's sort of play tennis with this. We'll do one at a time, one each. Um, I'll, I'll jump off first. P- first serve, go for it. <laughs> okay, so look, a lot of time we talk about um, raising awareness with a campaign. Um, however, more recently, we're hearing this term salience. Uh, come up a lot and and I think you know even for me when I first heard it I sort of started attributing salience to awareness but actually they're, they're slightly different things so awareness would be just how many people are aware of your campaign so then if you ask them after you've run your campaign you did a study and you say hey are you aware that this brand ran the campaign they would recall seeing your brand recently that's that's awareness saliency actually means the propensity of the brand to be noticed or come to mind in buying situations. So saliency is actually a much stronger metric because what it means is that they not only recall that you had an ad campaign when they're sitting on their couch at home or wherever you ask them, but when they say get to that shelf or onto the website to choose what to buy, your brand is the one that comes to mind over others. Um, so this comes from uh, the sort of the marketing science theory of Professor Byron Sharp from a book called How Brands Grow, which we've recommended, I think, a couple of times on this episode. It's also known as the Big Red Book. <laughs> the Big Red Bible is yeah. what I call it. Uh, and, and essentially what brand saliency builds into is this idea of mental availability. Uh, and, it's, and it's the most important thing you can probably impact via media, at least according to How Brands Grow. So the more mental availability you have, which you drive with salience, um, the more that people are more, more likely to choose you when choosing a product and they're about to make the decision. And it's quite interesting because we talked about the idea of recency before being having your ad as close to that decision-making point as possible. If you're driving saliency, you're actually sort of driving your own sort of version of recency mm-hmm. if they remember you at the, the time they purchase. And then when they go into a store or onto a website, that product physically being there is called physical availability. So the idea is that the you bring together mental availability and physical availability, having your product available, and you win. Yeah, it makes an awesome uh, firework when they come together. Yeah, it's, it's a <laughs> true explosion. Exactly it. I think uh, moving on from that, we um, can also move on to really another important principle from how brands grow, especially, which is uh, growing through penetration. So oftentimes we hear about penetration when it comes to marketing. And what that means is how many households um, is your product actually in? And if and from a digital perspective, you could also think of it as um, how many people have your app installed on their phone or how many people use your service um, online. So. It's really about that re- reoccurring use and reoccurring availability of your product or service. 
Um, and we know that once you do increase penetration, oftentimes that's when you grow the most and the most quickly. Um, and if you're increasing penetration due to your advertising, you're uh, likely to increase sales. And to measure this, you need to make sure you're like actually pulling data on the sales performance that period of time. So, you know, as you're maybe doing a set survey on penetration, you can pick maybe 100 to 200 customers um, and to check how many of them are actually actively using your product. And then from that, also measure that same period of time. Did those people go back and make reoccurring purchases? Were they mm. really contributing to that total penetration score on a consistent basis? Yeah, totally. And I think the, the real link there is that if you drive salience, the most likely outcome is that you drive penetration. Uh, and, and the other p- point to note on penetration is that it's when we talk penetration, we talk households, not people. Mm. Um, so you're, um, if you're looking at like a pure raw number of penetration, that won't be what the population is. It will be how many households there are. Um, so, so yeah, really, really great one to measure because uh, yeah, outflow of penetration is usually sales. Okay. So, uh, on the flip side, we have something that is commonly referred to as AWOP. It's all, it's not an awesome hip hop dance move. (laughs) (laughs) Coming soon. Yeah. (laughs) But no, it's, 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 um, average weight of purchase. So this is quite interesting because often penetration and AWOP have an inverse relationship. So if you're driving penetration, your AWOP usually goes down. And that's because the more people that buy your product means that the, those individual people on average who buy your product are buying less of your product each time. That's what average weight of purchase is, how much they're buying every time they go to the store. The reason for that is, is that when you grow penetration, usually you've got, say you've got like 50% penetration always, and then you do a marketing campaign and it goes up to 70% penetration. That um, 20% of households are probably gonna be what you would consider light or new buyers. Therefore, they're probably gonna be buying less. They're probably gonna try it once and buy one product. Whereas your heavy, loyal buyers, that 50% maybe are buying two, three every time they go to the shop. So if you're growing penetration, usually your AWOP goes down and that's where you need to make a call with these metrics is, is what are you trying to drive? Is your campaign to get your current users to buy more or do you want to get new and light users in to buy your product once? So that's how AWOP works. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on from that, um, a great way to increase uh a brand saliency penetration and also AWOP is using TV <laughs> and TV mm. advertising, even though we live in a very digital age, um, is still the holy grail of influencing all of these key metrics. It's still really, really, really effective. And when you're looking at TV, a really important metric to look at is a TARP. And that's T-A-R-P, not a tarpaulin, which is something you can buy from Bunnings Warehouse to protect your belongings in harsh weather conditions. Yeah, and, and just as a note, if you do Google tarps uh, without saying media campaign after it, you'll get a lot of tarpaulins. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of quality products at great prices. But when it comes to TV, um, a tarp is refers to a, a, a target audience rating point. And it was actually invented in the 1970s in Australia by a man named Wilf Barker, which is really, really cool. And a tarp is the percentage of a target audience that watches the TV content that your ad was placed within. So for example, if you're buying ads against the audience of people that were like 18 to 49, and the tarp for that audience in that program was The Simpsons on Channel 10, and they're about like 23, that means that 23% of your target audience within that demographic are watching that program and will probably see your ad. 
Mm. And it's a really, really cool way to measure um, how effective your TV uh, campaign has been. And also see if it's laddering up to those other metrics down the line as well. Totally, yeah. TARPS was, uh, when it was introduced, it was a great way to actually democratize sort of TV buying for, mm. for um, companies wanting to advertise because it meant that there was a way to measure what you're actually getting and therefore it goes uniform across all the channels. Whereas before that, different channels would say, oh, we're a more premium audience. So our, our, our media inventory is going to be, uh, it's going to cost you more. And it goes back to that, that, um, that principle we were talking about, about thinking of yourself as an investment banker sometimes as a marketer. And you know, before TARPs were introduced, you'd be putting up millions of dollars for a TV mm. campaign, kind of hoping and wishing that it was going to drive uh, your performance. But you know, it was an awesome way to start uh, optimizing that campaign and also knowing what you were getting for your, for your investment as well. Yeah, and, and that's where channels like Channel 10, which traditionally uh, were, had smaller audience sizes versus Channel 9 and 7, uh, was able to actually come back and earn a lot of money through advertising because they were able to prove really great tarps against specific demographics mm. um, that the other channels couldn't deliver at mm. that time, which is cool. And and just as a, an outflow of that, wh- when you have tarps, that's sort of within specific media buys within sort of certain programming. Uh, and then if you run a whole campaign across multiple channels, multiple programs, all of that adds up to what they call GRPs or gross rating points. And that's like a number that you can use for your total campaign. Um, but moving on from that, uh, another great media metric to measure is reach. So we set up the top reach uh, is responsible for 22% of the effectiveness of your ad campaign, according to the Nielsen study. So what reach is, is essentially how many, how many people's, how, how many sets of eyeballs saw your ad or are going to see your ad? <laughs> yeah. that, that's it. So it's, it's literally how many people are you reaching? Um, and the, the important thing to note is it's the reach of how many different people will see your ad I'll be exposed to your ad, sorry, in a certain amount of time. So it's not necessarily views um, and there's no double up in reach. So if your uh, campaign consisted of one TV ad during the Married at First Sight finale, Mark, I know you're watching that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, then, uh, and that we know that the Married at First Sight finale had 1.98 million people watch it last year, then your reach would have been 1.98 million people. Yeah, absolutely. It's and, as simple as that. And to myself, to break down rates, sometimes I think about like, you know when you go to a market, uh, like a farmer's market, and someone's selling like a really hot fruit item, like maybe they're like, they've got this big discount on really delicious oranges, and the guy like gets up on the table, is very animated, and is screaming about, you can get 10 for $10, and they're amazing, the most delicious things ever. How loud that guy's voice is and how many different people actually come to the store is how I like to think about reach sometimes. That it's really just, he's talking to that many individual heads in the market that are coming to them buy the fruit. I really need to come to your fruit market. (laughs) (laughs) It's every uh, Saturday at Bondi Beach at the Bondi Farmers Markets. (laughs) That's way more exciting than the the fruit market I go to. But but look, with reach as well, uh, as we said, brand salience is thought to be one of the the things that uh, is going to drive your brand the most and your sales the most. And Getting as much reach as possible is going to get as much salience as possible, which is going to hopefully drive as much penetration for your brand as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And then flowing naturally from reach, we have frequency. Um, and frequency is like if you're attempting to reach a specific audience, the message that you want to have them exposed uh, frequently, you want to focus on driving that frequency as a media metric. So um, this is when you want to make sure that your message is really landing. And we've talked about this and the principle behind this in other episodes. And it kind of harks back to the idea of classical conditioning in psychology that the more you repeat something, the more you remember something and the more you're able to actually then go and act on that. Um, So for example, 
if you uh, play your ad once during a certain TV program, your reach might be 1 million. And if that's if the program is big enough, like Married at First Sight, which you and I, Mark, really mm. love, um, and it has that many viewers, then your frequency would be one because they only saw your ad once. However, if you played that ad in another TV program with exactly the same audience, then your frequency would increase to two. Often you can buy media with a frequency minimum. So you might buy only two plus frequency. However, on the, upper, on the other side, you might actually want to have a frequency cap, um, especially if this comes up in digital media buys, um, which ensures the audiences don't see your ad more than a certain number of times. Because sometimes there's a flip side to it, right? If you uh, see an ad more than once, you might be more inclined to then act on something. But if you see a piece of creative in an ad too many times, you might just experience burnout and fatigue and might uh, develop a really bad brand relationship and just get really annoyed. And uh, when you're spending that money as a marketer, you're probably not gonna be getting the best uh, return on investment because there is an equilibrium point where you need to cut it off. Yeah, exactly. And with TV, you know, if you're getting, if you're going for a high frequency buy, you're, you're sort of surrounded by a lot of other ads and a lot of context, whereas on the internet, those ads can just follow you around yeah. constantly. And, and really what frequency capping is, is just reducing the piss off factor. It really is. And it's yeah. one of the reasons I've never bought from the good guys retailers. Because <laughs> <laughs> anytime I ever Google something, I tried to buy an iron once and it's um, I'm really getting a, a, a frequently targeted. Sales. You know, I don't think I've ever received a good guy. Yeah, I don't know what it says about me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that one. Great. So that's frequency. Uh, look, moving on to, I guess, some softer metrics that you could try and uh, measure as part of your media campaign. So one of those things is you can uh, look at sentiment. And what this is, is I guess sentiment amongst the engagement in your advertising. So this is less about TV uh, and, and sort of those older, uh, more traditional media channels and more about newer digital and social media channels. So the idea with measuring sentiment is that, say you put out a Facebook ad a post uh, and you get a hundred engagements on there. So first of all, you could measure your engagement rate, which we've talked about before in social media. Um, but then you could measure the sentiment of those engagements. So the whole idea here is, I don't know about you, Mark, but if you ever run a media campaign and someone goes, how's it going? <laughs> and, and you're like, well, well, I mean, I paid for this much reach and I got this much reach and it's probably too soon to see the sales results. Yeah right? Um, one of the things you can look at is sentiment. So, well, I did put this ad out and look, we got the reach that we wanted and we over-delivered on X, Y, and Z metrics, but out of the hundred people that engaged, 95 of them were positive engagements. You know, look at the comments, everyone's saying, wow, this is really cool. Great mm. product. I want to buy this. Where can I buy it? <laughs> is what you hope to see. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a really good way to just straight off the bat, the first day you post your ad, you can go, great. This is what people think of it because from a creative optimization point of view, if people are going, oh, this, this adds crap, you can sort of try and work out what's going wrong, change it and then repost it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's one of those cool things that when you do do your media campaign, it's so important to be like your biggest fan of that media campaign and to either, you know, follow it around um, on, on your bike and see it on the back of the bus or on the highway, or also just to always be looking at it online because mm. you never know what goal might come out uh, come out of that, especially from a sentiment piece to help you maybe have some insights to optimize in the middle of the campaign. Yeah, it's, it's almost like if we posted a po podcast episode and then never looked at anything to do with it. <laughs> We're just like, oh, well, it's out there now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, moving on from that, we also have the metric of audience retention. And this is something that's really, really common in the video mediums. 
Um, and that's usually in relation to uh, video content that you see um, on YouTube, for example. And YouTube has a really great uh, uh, self-service tool that helps you assess this. Um, and audience retention, essentially what it, would, what it would tell you is that on average, how long are people actually watching your video for? So for example, if you have a five minute video on YouTube and your audience retention score is 50%, then on average, people are watching your video to the about two minutes and 30 mark. And what you might want to do is then watch 50% of your creative asset only to understand how much of the average consumer is actually seeing what you're trying to put out there. Um, are they getting the key message at that point? Because you might have an amazing creative that goes for that whole time and a lot of people might be reached, they might watch it, but they might never get to the meat of what they really need to do. Oftentimes, we, you know, if you see really good movies or you see really good ads that come with a twist at the end, it's really important to understand how many people are actually going to see the twist. Mm -hmm. Because you could come out of that movie theater if your, your phone went off or, or you weren't enjoying the movie um, and not get the full idea of the creative. And similar thing, you could be watching the whole ad and not actually get the same the right message. Yeah, totally. This is so important for people doing content marketing yeah. campaigns as well because often the... It, it comes in long form, yeah. Uh, you know, and for YouTube, anything that you're going to put over five minutes or so, or even shorter, you really want to make sure people are watching as much as possible because not only, you know, will they maybe won't they they won't see that your brand or what you're trying to sell in the first thirty seconds or less when they with what they actually watch is you probably put a lot of time and effort into that mm. creative. You made a piece of content and you want to make sure that you're getting enough people interested in it to watch it all the way through. Hundred percent. And you also want to make sure that there's no mistake that you know if people aren't watching towards the end that they also don't think that your ad is actually for another product or service mm. because you don't want to make sure that the the money you're putting down to launch your media campaign isn't actually supporting an, an, an irrelevant industry or even one of your competitors accidentally if you have a similar style product or service that you're promoting. Yeah, you definitely don't want some misattribution there because yeah. that's, that's just like an absolute kick in the teeth. <laughs> you do all the advertising <laughs> and they, they get the benefit. Great. So another one is uh, to, to, I guess, benchmark and, and, and look at is brand associations. So something that's important is, you know, when we're talking about brands and building brands, we're, we're trying to build a, a deeper relationship than just selling the features of the product. So often with advertising and with the creative we use to advertise, we're not selling uh, a rational ad mm -hmm. uh, that's just trying to pers persuade someone that your product is better than your competitors. We're usually using emotion to get people to really engage. And, and it's, it's proven that emotional campaigns actually work better than rational campaigns. So when you're doing an emotional piece of creative and, and putting it out there with your media, what you might want to do is set up some, I guess, more emotional benchmarks that you want to see if they're actually resonating with consumers when they see it. Because you might think that you want your brand to be about, um, you know, premium, a premium brand or, or is a cool brand or something like that. Uh, but then when you measure those metrics with consumers, if you're not getting that result back that consumers actually think you're a premium brand or a cool brand, mm -hmm. as lame as that might sound as a metric, um, then you might want to change what you're doing in your creative. So you want to set these up at the start, like before your first campaign, and you want to keep them consistent and the same from campaign to campaign. So if you're measuring whether people think you're a cool brand, you want to keep working on that metric and see if it keeps growing with all the advertising that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really, really important metric. And oftentimes we make decisions based on emotion, not on pure rational thought. Mm. And that's why it's really important to also make sure you're considering that emotional element throughout your really rational and um, analytical media buy as well. 
Absolutely. And uh, moving on from that, we also have another classic, which we've uh, started to touch on a little bit towards the top, which is engagement. Um, so that's how many people actually make an engagement. And when we talk about that, if you want to quantify how people are interacting with your ad, oftentimes based on the media type, they'll have a different engagement metric that you can choose to analyze. So some really common ones that we use for digital would be a like, a comment or a share. So that would be people that have really not only seen your ad, but have done something with it. Um, or if you're uh, seeing the bus shelter ad, if you give it a big high five as you're walking past. <laughs> My favorite form of engagement. <laughs> it's an amazing piece of engagement. Um, and this is really, really great to, to help drive a content marketing strategy. Yeah, exactly. And you set your benchmarks up front. If you ran a piece of digital content, social content in a previous campaign, what was the engagement rate versus this time? What was the engagement rate? Um, look, final one, really quick one is a really obvious one, but click throughs as well. Yeah. So again, you've got to set what your objective is and click clicking might not be what you want people to do for your campaign, especially if it's just content you want people to watch. Therefore you might look at completion rates or audience retention instead. But if you do want to drive an action then your click through rates, a really obvious one. So it's essentially just seeing how many people clicked and took the action you wanted them to take from your ad. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So I think we've done metrics pretty well there i think we've sort of done a rapid fire yeah we smashed it <laughs> hope you guys have learned as much as we did <laughs> Ooh, that was awesome Ooh. but um i think the next step is uh i guess something we've touched on throughout which is optimization mm. so you've got your benchmark set up and you've got all the metrics you're going to track and then what are you going to do if you're not getting there in in your on, on those metrics so you're looking at things like a completion rate and you know it's not what you expected mm. and it's not going so well um, you know, people always say it's not about the failure, it's about how you react, right? Exactly. And this is your moment. <laughs> exactly. You're just sitting there and you've got the, the report and you just, you're either sweating or you're keeping very cool. And yeah. Calm. You've just been asked by your boss, how's it going? And you, and you looked at that um, engagement sentiment and you're like, oh, not very well, actually. <laughs> it's, oh, that's not gone well. Uh, look, so what you want to do then is optimize. Uh, and with the rise of digital media channels and programmatic buying, optimization has never been easier and you can do it live. So you could literally choose uh, a moment in time. So maybe you're when you're one week or two weeks into your campaign, you're gonna check X, Y, and Z metrics. And if they're not up to uh, scratch, you're gonna start thinking about optimization. So what are the ways you can do this? Uh, an example would be, let's say that you've got some video ads running on YouTube. You've got a 30 second ad and you've got a 15 second ad. And when you go and look at the metrics, uh, you notice that uh, you were going after completion and you look at the completion rate and you see that the 15 second creative is actually falling below benchmark mm -hmm. uh, on, uh, on the completion rate, whereas the 30 is actually driving a higher completion rate than what, what your benchmark was. So what they might say is that, look, your 30 second ad seems to be doing better than previous 30 second ads, whereas your 15, it's just not working. Maybe it was a cut down and it's just too quick. It might be something that creatively it just didn't work. That could be one insight that you get later. So what you can do instantly is go, great, I'm going to pull some investment out of my 15 and I'm going to push it into my 30. And it's that easy. It's literally about just going what's working well and what's not and optimizing. Another example might be you, you might have that same 30 second video and you've got it a bunch against a bunch of targets, like 20 different targets. Some of them are targets based on lineup on YouTube. Some of them are demographic targets. Uh, some of them are against uh, whatever it might be, whatever people watch before anything. Mm. And you notice that some of the targets are getting better completion rates than others. Well, you might say, well, I've got a choice here. I can go for the people who aren't really responding to my video uh, and, and try and optimize the video that I'm serving them to get them to complete it. Or 
I can just start investing in the ones that are consuming my content. And if you're going for completion rate, it probably means you're going for engagement in your content or uh, just people watching it. Mm. So therefore, you might want to shift the money towards those guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's uh, really exciting when you start to hack your immediate plan midway mm. through. And it can almost become like this really exciting video game. And optimization, like you said, is, is so important for when things aren't going so great. But they're also something to really keep in mind when things are already going really well. But oftentimes, if you you know things are going well, it's not a time to kind of sit back and just kind of let it do its thing. There might be opportunities for even further growth if you keep optimizing and, and going through. So the process can be really similar for both sides. Mm, it's almost like shifting up another gear. Yeah, exactly it. Mm, nice. All right, well... I think we should move on to a case study. Yeah, absolutely. Let's put some of these principles into practice. Let's do it. Look, I found a quite a cool case study uh, from the land of Belgium. Ooh. Uh, and the company is a really well-known one, IKEA. Oh, wow. I've never heard of them. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to give you a lesson on what IKEA is. I think you could just go to Rhodes or something. You'll see the big billboard. But uh, look, IKEA in Belgium, this, this is a case study about how they first of all, took an omni-channel approach to their media strategy. Uh, and then second of all, how they used metrics to optimize uh, their strategy to get a better return. So this is a really fresh one as well. So in 2019, IKEA was working on a strategy to increase their footfall in stores. So that was their overall objective was footfall. And we know that footfall in stores is gonna drive sales. Mm. Um, so with the border between online and offline brand interactions becoming thinner and thinner, um, it is getting harder for businesses like IKEA to understand what channels and content is actually working the hardest to grow their business or to grow that footfall because there's so much going on. They, they can't really pinpoint it as to what's getting people into the stores. So consumers are interacting with IKEA via digital means more than ever. So they're doing it before, during and after um, they visit a physical distribution point. So if you think about it, like you might look up something online, you might go to the store and then you might look it up online again as you're looking for it in the store or even comparing to the one you saw online to see if it's the same. And then even after maybe setting it up, how do you put it together? You know, it doesn't look like what I thought it was gonna look like, you'll interact after as well. Um, but the consumers are expecting the same level of service regardless of where they go, whether it's physical or digital. Therefore, a brand like IKEA has to have an omni-channel presence that drives to a very clear objective, which is in this case, footfall. So to do this, they need to connect the digital omni-channel approach to their offline sales through the retail stores. So IKEA's marketing team uh, wanted to better understand how online ad clicks converted to that footfall. And the metric they chose to measure was store visits specifically. Mm. So they said store visits is, is what we're gonna do to measure footfall. Um, and to measure impact on this metric, IKEA would then use average basket values and in-store conversion rates combined with footfall, driven by each part of their digital channel mix to calculate a comprehensive return on ad spend for each channel. Whoa. So they took all these metrics and they went, we're gonna measure these metrics against all of the, the ads that we're running uh, in silo, and we're gonna see which one gives us the best ROI essentially on that metric, which is gonna result in more sales. Um, so I, they did this and they calculated that their overall return on ad spend was 18 to one. $18 return for every dollar spent. That's huge. It's really cool, right? And as we said, like we talked about uh, efficiency and, um, and effectiveness, and this is obviously effective for them, and they're now trying to work out the efficiencies, what works best. Um, but more specifically, IKEA found that the mobile uh, mobile ads were the most significant device for driving footfall with an 80% higher return than desktop campaigns. Mm. Um, and as a result, IKEA then live optimized all their campaigns to disproportionately invest in mobile elements of the campaign 
including ensuring that their creative was geared towards mobile first. Mm. So really nice little case study of just how a company, a big company like Ikea, did, did the maths, did the optimization live and were able to get an even better return on their ad investment. Exactly. I think it's such an awesome case study, not only because they got such an amazing result, but they really just put a lot of those principles and the process into practice. And sometimes it can be a bit data admin heavy or it can be a bit menial to go through a process like that. But once you do go through the optimization and even the campaign measurement perspective, you put the learnings into practice, you can get some really cool learnings and really help to drive sales when you have that focus. Yeah, and it's really rewarding as well. It, it does sound really boring at yeah. first. Like, what, you know, because you when you're talking about these metrics, they sound interesting, but when you're looking at them on paper, you're looking at like, well, you had a 0.12% click-through rate, which is against a benchmark of 0.11%. And you're looking at that going, oh, it's just numbers on a page, right? Yeah. For a lot of people, that isn't very sexy. But when you look at like 80% higher return on certain types of ads versus others, and you start seeing the results and the next campaign read comes in and you see how much better it's doing, that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's really, really exciting. And um, I hope that uh, you guys listening have uh, felt like you've got some of those tools to put into practice for your own media campaigns, or that's maybe looking at past campaigns, but also planning for the future. And hope you can get an awesome result just like Ikea did. Totally. Um, but as we know, Mark, uh, being marketers, we need to be aware of what's going on in the world around us, not just what's happening in the marketing world. So what have you found interesting this week? Look, so I've been on a little bit of a musical journey this week. Uh, I've really embraced the algorithm. So um, I have started using YouTube to listen to a lot more music lately. And I find that it's, it's been giving me uh, access to a whole bunch of different artists that I don't usually get served with when I usually listen on Spotify. So it's kind of cool to take a back seat and just kind of give that algorithm just a little bit of a break to check out another algorithm. And I got exposed to a whole bunch of new artists. Um, and the artist that I found really interesting this week is an artist named Joji, and it's spelled J-O-J-I. And he makes this kind of like very melancholy um, form of R&B, which is like hauntingly soothing, but also like very like a little, like quite hipster and um, a bit nonchalant. And his style is like so, uh, it's so emotive and the production is so silky and deep and smooth. And I was really taken aback by it. And I was like, wow, who is this guy? Like th th these songs are really powerful and really interesting. And he's got a, quite an interesting sense of humor. And as I started to do a lot more digging, I realized he was connected to uh, a really interesting record label called 88 Rising. And 88 Rising are this really fantastic record label that are promoting a whole bunch of uh, uh, artists that are from uh, Asian cultures and heritage and background. And it's got this really awesome uh, cultural representation across their uh, record label. And it has all these really, really interesting artists on there that are blending heaps of different styles from all these different genres and all these different cultural backgrounds to create this really, really interesting music. And they're huge. They just mm. put on, I just found out, they just put on this uh, their own uh, music festival that which they completely sold out, which was just using artists from their labels. And it's tapping to this huge uh, market, which I never really knew existed. Mm. And I'm so glad I do now because the music is awesome. Um, and I wouldn't have probably discovered it had I not get uh, had I not had it fed to me from the algorithm. Wow. So it's cool. It's interesting, right? We spoke about today a lot about the different ways that you discover things and brands through media campaigns. But this kind of happened, I guess, as organically as it can, uh, getting served through an algorithm. And I discovered a really interesting new piece of art. 
and a new piece of culture which is connecting with a lot of different people but yeah if you, if you get a chance uh, check it out it, he's got some um he, his lyrics at times can be quite confronting so maybe don't listen to it around with children mm. but um they're hauntingly beautiful and uh i actually went to a korean barbecue with some friends that i uh, that we were when we were talking about this artist over dinner and when uh, we were driving home we started to put it on and it started raining and we listened to this like really like rich and soothing r&b music uh really loud as like the rain was hitting the car and i was like I'm really glad that sometimes you just need to find the right artist for the right mood and the right weather and you can have this really cool shared experience with music so check out joji j-o-j-i if you get a chance um and yeah it's really wow. cool i can't wait to check out joji I, I love as well that it's this cool relationship between like you listen to spotify and you're getting served maybe a lot of the same stuff yeah. or same type of stuff and you kind of want to break out and get something new and uh and you're sort of you know then searching something on youtube so it feeds you something new so you're using maybe a previous search from spotify on youtube or a genre yeah. which is serving something else and now you could probably go plug into spotify joji and go listen to some joji and now it's going to start feeding you some different stuff yeah it's almost like you're just you're just getting out a little bit to get a little bit of exposure that's going to help feed that algorithm and they, it's sort of like this cool symbiotic relationship that's really cool. It's like the flywheel of culture in the digital <laughs> age. It's like you just need to be using different content search algorithms um, for new pieces of art and media, and you can get some really cool combinations out of it. So, I reckon now you need to work out like what the optimal like number of influences in your algorithm are. Like, <laughs> like if you, it's like uh, you know when they used to have those jelly beans, and if you mix two different jelly beans together, you get another new flavor. Yeah. It's like if you mix this like Spotify with YouTube, you get this. If you mix Spotify with YouTube with Netflix, you get this flavor. Like, <laughs> I think what we do you both want? need to clear our weekends and just dedicate ourselves time to. Know. We've got some get, work to do. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Well, Mark, what did you um, what did you find interesting this week? So, uh, I did a little bit of a um, research piece into mm. the history of an Australian icon known as a Kubra. Well, I'll tip my hat to that. Mm. And and for a little bit of context for anyone listening, Mark and I both bought a Kubras this week. Uh, which sort of got me excited and made me go and research about it. So uh, and it was quite funny because I, I actually didn't tell Mark this when we, we went together to the store to buy our Kubras, was that I'd actually previously researched a Kubras and I had so much knowledge in my mind about a Kubra, but I was pretending in the store not to know that much because one, I didn't want to sound like a nerd. And two, I wanted to talk about it today and I didn't want to repeat it to you twice. <laughs> So I'm sitting there, the guy, the guy in the shop's like, oh, you know, we could do this model. And I'm in my head, I'm like, yes, that was a heritage model from 1974. <laughs> yeah, here I was being like, oh, there's a whole bunch of hats here. I guess I was like, I can't help. We should just try them on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so look, let's dive on it. Uh, it's a great story. So in 1874, um, in 1874, uh, Benjamin Dunkerley arrived in Tasmania from England. Strong name. Yeah, really cool. And he decided to start a hat making business in Hobart. Uh, his skills as a hatter were backed by his ability to invent machinery. Really nice combo. And soon after his arrival, he had developed a mechanical method of removing the hair tip from rabbit fur, as you do, uh, so that the under fur could be used in felt hat making. Previously, this task had been done by hand. So really, really great innovator in the hat industry. Uh, so in the early 1900s, Dunkerley moved his business to Crown Street, Surrey Hills. Wow. Local, um, which is an inner suburb of Sydney, if you don't know it. And that's where he set up his uh, small hat making factory. Uh, the trade name Akubra came into use on the 7th of August, 1912. And it's thought to be an Aboriginal word for head covering. Oh, that's 
Yeah, it's cool. Hey. Um, okay, so this is where it gets really interesting from a business point of view. Uh, in World War One, Akubra was contracted to make the famous army slouch hat, a contract that they still hold to this day. And actually, wars have been a huge boom period for Akubra because those um, military contracts, a, a lot of hats mm. were done during World War One and World War Two. Um, anyway, as the business got larger, uh, in 1972, they moved up to Kempsey, uh, which some of you may know as the home of Slim Dusty. Oh. Meant to be a little bit, I think, there. Uh, and, and that's where they became a huge employer for that region as well. So rural job, jobs on the mid-north coast, uh, really important employer. Uh, in 1982, this is when they started to get a little bit marketing on us. Uh, the Man from Snowy River released, uh, and the hat that was inspired by the movie becomes a staple in the Akubra range. Oh. So what you'll see is that the, when you go to an Akubra store or a hat store with Akubras, that they have a lot of um, like heritage models or models that are named after people or things like the Man from Snow River. And that's because they tried to align themselves to movies and pop culture events where people were wearing a hat and made the hat for them. And then they sold the hat to consumers. That's awesome. Yeah. So... Um, it is estimated that uh, 21 million hats have been made uh, by the time they did the Snowy River hat. So that's how many they'd, they'd made by that. So really big, big, big hat companies, right? So from there, they, um, they after the release of Crocodile Dundee in 1986, the Croc hat was born. So that's where they, uh, you've probably seen it, the one that, uh, what's his name? Hogan, Paul Hogan wears with the Croc strap across it. And they still sell that one today. Um, as a business, uh, they're really interesting. So the rural community now accounts for 70% of sales and that shifted massively. They used to be an inner city company. They moved up to Kempsey and they started doing hats like the Croc and their sales shifted to be more rural. And it, you can see why they're big wide brimmed hats and it makes sense to have them out in the country. Um, and then even more, like there's another, if you know Greg Norman, the famous Australian golf player, uh, in 1987, they made the Great White Shark hat and he wears that every time he plays. That's a really famous hat and and that was one that Akubra made for him as well. So look, just really cool company. I was super excited to buy an Akubra this week. I've been waiting a long time to buy an Akubra. It's like I wanted to invest in for a long time and just researching it just made me so much more excited. A cool Australian company. They had a little bit of like marketing thought there and what they were doing with their production and their product management and yeah just a little bit of history of australia right there that's awesome it's definitely definitely scored a hat trick there so um uh, <laughs> it's um i tip, tip my hat off uh, um yeah we could go all day but seriously though in all also in all earnestness it is an awesome company mm. and really really cool um to learn a bit more about their story and yeah, you're right. They got some great marketing insights, and marketing may not have really been clearly defined yet. Mm. Just super, super cool. Totally. Well, guys, as always, thank you for joining our learning journey. If you've enjoyed the podcast, leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. You can also keep up to date with us on our LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook pages at The Marketing Show Pod. Catch you next week. Thank you.